Hey, CNFers. Guidelines for issue four of the audio magazine on the theme codes are at brendanomero.com. Hey, hey. Go check it out and consider submitting your essay. Okay? I'm working on issue three. Well, I haven't really been working on it, but I'm going to start really working on it. I've been debating whether or not to kill it because I had a few withdrawals and it left a thinnish remainder, like just not that much, and it's going to be really short. But I was like, should I just kill it or or proceed? And I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. I think I'm just going to plow through and make do with issue three on heroes. I like what I have. It's just it's just not as robust as it was. And that's that's okay. I think it's still going to hold up just fine. So stay tuned. Okay? Good. You know, slouching towards middle age. Are you kidding me? I, like, catwalked into middle age. I slid into middle age like a Cheshire cat, tail first. Oh, hey, CNFR, this is the... the... What is it? Oh, yeah, it's the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Mara. How's it going? Boy, you know something? I hope you have a friend in your life, like Ruby McConnell, who makes her third trip to ye old ZNF pod. I'll, you know, I hope you have a friend like her out there. She's the kind of person where you talk about the thing you're working on, and suddenly the clouds break and outshines possibility. Right there, just a beam of sunlight, a beam of possibility. She's the author of Ground Truth, great essay collection, A Woman's Guide to the Wild, She's a wonderful writer. And someone I'm proud to call a pal. We're both working on books in the same time period, so we like to say that we're hanging out in the same era. She had one of the most incredibly amazing codas to one of our podcasts together. Turns out it was the second time she was on the show. And, you know, instead of me telling you about it, I dug through all that tape. Oh, boy, did I dig. And I found it, and I'm going to play it for you right now. So you get up and you keep writing, even if you're not making money, even if you launch your book into the void of the pandemic, even, you know, if if your agent has to bail, even even if you have to revise a million times, even if you're going to miss a deadline, even, even if it's hard or you don't want to, or you're you you're not getting you know recognition or you get cut down by your peers because you are getting recognition you keep doing it because somewhere out there is someone who needs to hear what you have to say and if you are authentic and true to to yourself and and what you do your work will find that person yeah, she's at Ruby Gone Wild on Twitter and Instagram. You can learn more about her and her work at rubymcconnell.com. But before we get to Ruby's tremendous insights into writing and leading a, a patient writer's life, I'd encourage you to keep the conversation going at CNF Pod on Twitter and at Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram. Consider heading over to our Patreon page to help support this enterprise and the audio magazine. It's a big ask. I know that. I'm already asking you for an hour of your week. If you just listen to one of these a week, you're spending an hour of your valuable time with this show. And I have the audacity to ask for two bucks or $4 a month. I mean, 
it's yeah it is audacious but those dollars man though boy they mean a lot the show is the show is free but it sure as hell ain't cheap and you can always of course go to brendanomero.com <laughs> sign up for the up to 11 rage against the algorithm newsletter for book recommendations and raffles and just some, some cool stuff that i think will put some fuel in your tank on the first of the month no spam so far as i can tell you can't beat it and what also means a lot are those nice reviews on apple podcasts if you leave one i will read it right here in this spot i think in this era it's all the more important especially for us as writers mid-list writers especially to leave reviews for the books we read and the podcasts we listen to. We're in that review economy. I know how many times have you benefited from that validation you get from seeing something new and you're like, oh, that's a lot of reviews. I, I That means something. Validates the whole enterprise. And it might just persuade another CNFer to join our little brigade here in our corner of the internet. All right. I put out the bat signal this week to Ruby because uh, I hadn't fired up the mics with her in a while. And I, I also just desperately needed an interview this week. I was about to just call a, call it a week off. Cause I just, it, things didn't line up, but she stepped up to the plate. Man, she had a bomb to center field over their head, you know, into the batter's eye. Unbelievable. So let's give a big CNF and welcome to the incredible Ruby McConnell. Riff. So these days, how are you? How are you juggling those at this at this point in the process of all those all those projects you've got? I think I'm a cautionary tale. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm doing fine. Um, you know, what's interesting? Publishing is in a really interesting place right now. I, I think moving perhaps even more slowly than um, it typically does on all fronts. And and there's been lots of delays and, and pushbacks from things unrelated to me. And I've benefited from that a little bit <laughs> by being given a little bit more wiggle room. Yeah. So I've been able to, um, I guess what I'm doing right now, because I do have so many sort of projects going, is, is kind of leapfrogging my work where um, I get a chunk of time to kind of, you know, bust out a, a large chunk of something or enough to hand it on to someone else, you know, like get a few chapters into this editor. And that gives me a little chunk of time to, you know, make some edits and send it to the agent. And then, you know, a piece of freelance will come in and I'll sort of scuttle and get that done. And then, you know, while things are occupied, I'll try to like move the ball forward on things. And then it's, we started all over again as people resurface. That's how I've been doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I think similarly, I'm in a similar position just with, I feel like uh, attention is very splintered and fractured. And it's, as a result, it's been very hard for me to really stay focused and to even stay, weirdly enough, even though I have a lot of things going on that I should be very motivated for, I'm like having a real hard time staying motivated. I feel like I'm in a real slump and creatively unmotivated. And I, I don't know what to attribute that to, but I wonder if maybe like that's something that you wrestle with. Um, yeah, I think so. I think, you know, it's interesting because I'm hyperactive. Mm -hmm. So I'm hyperactive and very detail oriented. So 
when I feel demotivated, it doesn't necessarily result in not still doing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like it, it like taps into, um, I don't know, maybe my Catholic school upbringing where I just kind of feel really guilty about my work for an unidentifiable reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I should have more enthusiasm for it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting because like it, and I think because of the, the geologic time in which publishing functions, it can feel like you have forever to get a project done when really, um, because there's so much involved in, in long form writing in particular, like you, you're never going to have enough time and you know this, but I think it's like um, you get into like a fun house on the time space continuum <laughs> where um, it becomes harder and harder to identify what is pressing. And that's how it manifests for me. Like this, this very morning I was, I was like, you know, my husband casually asks like, so what are you doing? What's your day look like? I'm like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> Because I was having a hard time sort of finding the thing I that was most pressing because right now I have nothing with a short deadline. I have many things with long deadlines. Right. And so, yeah, like it was stalling me out because it would have been easy to just go for a hike. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and so like that process of like it was pretty painful to kind of choose – what it was. And, and ultimately I hummed and hawed for a very long time and landed on exactly what, you know, I had said my plan of action was at the beginning of the week. I was like, Oh, I'll just do the thing I planned on doing. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Oh, simple. <laughs> well, so, yeah. I mean, part of that is that I do have a structured, I do like I'm a freelancer and a, you know, independent writer, but I try really hard to structure my time so that I don't have to wake up every morning and choose. I always go back to this, you know, several years ago, uh, a person my wife worked with at a, at a consulting firm, like he just, this guy, he had a very, very simple set of likes and priorities in his life. Like he had his job. He loved playing slow pitch softball, like was obsessive about it. Like even wore a uniform and everything. So, so into it. And he just lived for like, kind of working on his house and going on like maybe one to two cruises a year. And like, that was essentially it. Like there was no, nothing else in his distracting in his life. No other ambitions that I could, it seemed very simple in the best possible way. And I always go back to that and admire that. Cause I have all these like weird creative ambitions that ultimately leave me like kind of bitter and resentful. And I'm like, man, I <laughs> I wish I could just be like him. He just seemed to have it figured out. He's like, I love my softball. I clock in. My, I do my nine to five. I play my game. I go on a couple cruises a year and maybe renovate my bathroom. And like, that's it. <laughs> yes. He's, yeah, he, because he's really mastered the art of contentment. Yeah. You know? And I think, I think you've totally put your finger on it that like, you know, ambition can be motivating and demotivating if your am if your ambitions don't fit your um current moment you know that like it, it becomes hard to sort of like ground yourself into you know things that start to look mundane instead of things that make you content in the stuff of your day-to-day life yeah and running uh, running writing writing these days too and even just trying to generate anything it i liken it to 
it feels like walking through a a swamp and it's just you know hip deep in mud and sludge and it's just like a real slog to go and I understand like what a tremendous privilege it is to write and sometimes write for money and to do some creative things but it's like this thing that uh you, it, for for a long time was so energizing and right now it it feels like the greatest a slog of my life and I it's just it, and that in and of itself is like this thing that used to bring me so much like energy and joy it's like not doing that right now and that's in and of itself is just extremely dispiriting now see when I when I feel like that I stop writing and go to I, I go that's what research is for which I consider writing as well so is it is it all of it or is it the putting of the words onto the page I, I think these days it's 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 the Putting the words on the page because it, even what I put on the page, it just looks like, I don't know, if anything, maybe like a competent freshman in high school is doing. And it, and it's just like, it just feels like true labor and there's no, there's no snap, crackle and pop to it. And I, I don't know if that's just a lack of this. Here's a little of insecurity and uh, that stuff coming through is just like, well, do I just not have the ability to make the shit pop or is it, am I just a little burnt out or like you said, like maybe I just need to do a shit ton more researching and interviewing. And then it's like, okay, the, sometimes you, you, you can't have gold unless you're, unless you're going to the, the mine a lot to, to, to find it. Right. And just, I just really enjoy research. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I like, it just like makes me happy. Yeah. And, and I feel like it's never wasted time. Um, yeah. And it's, it's filling up your bucket. Yeah. That's interesting, but it's interesting too. So and I think maybe we've talked about this before, but when, when, when I write first, like the first thing that goes down on the page is like, I wouldn't even classify it as high school level. I would say mm-hmm. um, like the, the crazy rantings of like a completely, insane incoherent human who also has no grasp of grammar like <laughs> and i don't i don't fight that yeah. at all right, right 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 i lean right i mean i lean right into that like and i wouldn't even call it stream of consciousness because people who do like that's that's like a structured improvisation almost and this is far less sophisticated than that you know i mean it's just like bleh onto the page and and so like I and I find that very satisfying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you? Some, but I hear that many authors and many writers don't go through that process. Do you have a crazy phase that you go through? So like, or do you try to like craft actual coherence up front? I'm 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 kind of like you, and I'm lucky in that I have no problem writing bad stuff uh, early on. Like I can just it's part of newspaper training. Like I can just kind of get it out. And that's fine. I'm comfortable with that. I don't have any resistance around that. I think there are some sometimes where the struggle is, all right, should I just tell it really, really straight, very plainly? Uh, Because sometimes when I try when I've tried to be too funny or over stylized, things uh, things fall off the rails or I get dinged by editor, uh, you know, just people looking at that. So often I like, okay, I need to put a restrictor plate on this. And then sometimes it's a little too boring. And so I just, I can almost, I have a very hard time finding the right balance between just telling it really straight and simple or 
trying to elevate the writing to something a little more artful. I think that's where the struggle is right now. It's just like, okay, I'm having a hard time balancing just telling it straight or or is this a time where I can kind of let it rip and be a little more colorful with the language? Right. Yeah, that's, I mean, it really... It's it's finding the voice for the for the project that you're in. Yeah, like we all we all have our own writing voice, and that's important. But there are variations of that, um, and what you know, how much of us comes through. And yeah, again, I mean, like I've I've never I never try to write humor. Mm-hmm. Um, although many editors will tell you that I write humor, which I mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm super surprised to find out. When they're like, oh, this is so funny. You made this so funny. That's so great. I love it when you're funny. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I was taking myself super seriously when I wrote that, but I'm glad that it's entertaining. <laughs> right. So I would, I would never try knowing that it would go too far. Like if I accidentally am funny, then I can't imagine what would happen if I tried to be funny. It would probably be awful. I feel like I'm able to kind of disconnect in some respects and just sort of throw it down and see what the dominant voice is that emerges. But I understand that sense of getting like super hung up. And I think that the stagnation is not, I think that it is part of like the zeitgeist, zeitgeist ghost of the time, like the, of like the, the essentialness of this time. I don't know that it's necessarily like inherent to you just because I'm hearing it from so many people, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because I feel like we're in a, play, a time of like a lot of movement and, you know, like everybody's opened up and back to things and it seems like there's a lot going on, but it's like maybe our psyches haven't caught up with our, you know, restaurant going habits. <laughs> yeah. I'm like emerged yet from that. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting, but usually, yeah, usually if I have any struggles, I just completely walk away and go back to research because it's kind of like my happy place. And it usually knocks me out of that. Yeah. I think that's, uh, that's, that's, that's wise advice. I, 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 uh, when in a recent conversation I had with a reporter, uh, Greg Donahue for his atavist piece, I think he said something to the effect of like when he's, when he's stuck or something, he just realizes that it's not a writing problem. It's a reporting problem. Like he needs to do more interviewing and do more research. And in through, and there the material starts coming alive. Like he can't write his way through it. He's got to report his way through it. And as a result, he has these beautifully written, amazing pieces. But it's just like he's got to do a bit more legwork. So it's like it's not a writing issue. It's a research issue. Right. And I think that that's like, oh, like a really beautiful and elegant thing about nonfiction, you know, is that there's a well to go back to that is outside of yourself. Yeah. So like when I, if I, anytime I find myself reaching the limits of my, you know, sort of imagination, I have to kind of go back to the essentialism of like, right, because this is not actually a product of your imagination. Yeah. <laughs> and go back to like the essentialism of, you know, what uh, what else is there for for me to glean from this but i'm also i also come again you know like my background is in geology which is an observational science so like you know my training it's it's just interesting cuz people who have writing training are are trained to put things on the page 
write and to generate. And that's not my approach to writing at all. I sort of absorb first and then, um, you know, what comes out is very much related to that process of observation and less related to like a process of like, try, like it doesn't feel like I'm, I'm making something. It feels like I'm representing things that are already there. And so I think my relationship to, to the production part of writing is, is just a little different than what I hear a lot of writers talk about that have formal writing training, you know. Oh, this episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Listen, you've probably heard of these guys and I have yet to try this product. But what I dig about them is that they're plant based, which is important to me. Otherwise, this would be a non-starter. With one delicious scoop, you get 75. Wow, that's a, that's a lot. Right? Right, Hank? Uh, 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food, sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports gut health, nervous system, immune system, energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. I'm excited to dig into this stuff because it's vegan. But if you're one of those keto bros, it's compliant and uh, all that stuff. I like paleo too. It also supports better sleep quality and recovery. So if you're an early riser, you can wake up fresher and ready to tackle your work or your workouts, whatever you want to do. I don't know. What else is pretty rad is in 2020, Athletic Greens purchased carbon credits that support projects protecting old growth rainforests. If you want to experience Athletic Greens to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of what you had told me a while ago where you were learning Spanish and it wasn't like you weren't, it was like you weren't saying anything and then all of a sudden you were like, boom, like fluent. It just like came out. That kind of, I'm hearing that echo right now. Right. I think I have, my mom calls it, my mom says that I have a very long percolation time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She's like, you know, she's like, and, and sometimes it results in me like going complete, like in conversation, I'll just go completely silent and people will think that I'm ignoring them, but it's because they've, I've reached a point where I have to kind of like let things distill and shake out. Um, and I get kind of stalled out and and I do it in a long form too, where if I'm trying to learn something that involves synthesis, especially related to language, it's like, I just, and I can't tell you what's going on in my brain, but it needs some period of incubation time before, um, I can kind of, before I've kind of synthesized enough to have even anything to say about it. And I think it's peculiar to my brain. I think my dad does it a little bit. Um, But yeah, it works out for me because often, you know, I go from zero to having quite a lot to say and there's not kind of an intermediate thing. And I do it, you know, like often in my, you know, essay collections, like there was, there was one essay in ground truth that I, was trying to write last and trying to write last is the last essay in the book. I wanted it to kind of, you know, tie, be the rug that tied the room together. Um, and my editor was like, don't write it yet. Like make, you know, I want to get through all the developmental edits so that you have all the information. 
Um, but I'd been thinking about it and I'd been thinking about it and I'd been thinking about it. And then I went and did the field work up at Mount St. Helens for that essay and had a long road trip home and came home and like wrote the essay, just wrote it. Like I had, you know, like <laughs> very quickly, I think in, in one day and maybe two sittings and sent it um, to my editor. And I was like, I know you don't want this and I'm not supposed to write it, but I wrote it and it's done. And he was like, yeah, you've totally nailed this. And that was just, it was like, I had, I had just kind of collected the right amount of information that it came out kind of fully formed. It was really interesting. In your research, or if you're reading comp titles for something you're working on, is there ever a part of you that you'll get the, you'll, you'll get the book out of the library or buy the book and you're almost, you're almost scared to read it because you're you're you worry that they're going to tread on ground that you really want to write about but you don't you don't want to write a thing that's merely regurgitating something that's already been said so you're like procrastinating reading the thing because well if I don't read it I'm not going to know that so and so has written about so and so in such great detail but <laughs> but if I read it then I'm like ah oh, fuck they they already said they already said all these amazing things and then, god damn it I don't want to just regurgitate this I, I, I'm going through that right now. And so I'm wondering if you've experienced that. Oh, right. Right. Well, okay. So yeah, yes, I understand what you're talking about and no, and maybe I, I don't really fear that. Um, and maybe it's, <laughs> maybe it's cavalier. <laughs> maybe, I'm, maybe, I'm, maybe it's self focus and I just, you know, don't care what other people have written. But I, I do know that there's, there's an essay that I wrote very early on um, in my writing career. Like it was like the second thing I ever like wrote to be a writer outside of academia and, and, you know, things like that and scientific papers. And, um, and it came in third place at the um, Oregon Quarterly's essay Northwest perspectives essay contest, um, that they used to have. And the, the woman who, uh, Ellen Watterson, who was the judge, she was like, man, she's like, you know, this essay came in and this woman, she was writing about the salmon for a Pacific Northwest essays contest. And when I saw it, I was like, Oh, this woman really sent in an essay about this salmon. <laughs> like, how she was like, I wanted, I, I, from the start, I wanted to dismiss this essay um, because it was so obvious of a choice. And because everything has been written 10 times about the salmon, there is nothing new to say about the salmon. And, and then she was like, and then there wasn't, it turned out that there was something new to say about the salmon. And one of the things that, she, you know, that I dealt with in the essay was sort of the fact, the ubiquitous nature of the salmon and how, you know, there isn't anything to say about it. And so I had that. So it was interesting. So I got third place um, in spite of writing about the thing that was like the lowest hanging fruit, apparently. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a good lesson early on in my career to trust in my, you know, to quote myself that like my experiences are, are unique and valid. And that my perspective is unique and valid, um, just as everyone else's is. And that, and that I do, in fact, have something that is uniquely mine to contribute to um, whatever it is that I've decided to take on to write. Um, and trust that that's just going to come through. Yeah. And so, um, especially when I, and so when, I, when I do research, 
it's kind of the other way where I go, awesome. Someone else has written about that. I am going to um, consume that and integrate it with everything else that I know and use that to elevate my own work. Mm. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. You know, um, you can only learn from it. I mean, that's, you know, it's like, so this is like the classic dancer conundrum of do you dance at the front of the room so that the teacher can see you and so that you can see yourself in the mirror? Or do you dance at the back of the room so that you have more of your own space to work with and so that you can learn from all of the dancers in front of you? What's going to produce the better dancer? The person that's looking at themselves in the mirror and trying to be seen by the teacher through class or the person that's choosing to learn from like the 20 other people and who's taking their own space to have like their dance in their way. Yeah. It's an interesting conundrum. Have you written an essay about writing and dancing? I have not. <laughs> I've written nothing about dancing. You should. You should <laughs> definitely should. Or if, if nothing else, a craft essay on, uh, on writing and dancing. Um, Right. Or writing about dancing in general, I think they're, I, I think that would be a really rich uh, well for you to draw from. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because I do. It's it's kind of underlies all of my philosophy about how I work. Yeah, um, as a writer, and but you know, I mean, I feel like that's like a niche audience, man. For somebody that I already write in a niche audience, I don't know how much more niche I can get before I'm just talking to myself and you, you know, I got (laughs) to dance and environmental writing and the Pacific Northwest, like, gee. Dancing and geology. (laughs) I know. I get a lot of feedback. My my thing these days is I get a lot of feedback that like, both that I fill blank, you know, my I and my writing fills blank spots on the bookshelf, which is great, but also that um, it means that people don't know where to put me on the bookshelf, and that's that's a challenge. Regarding style, something we were talking about earlier, and uh, as you know, not to belabor the topic and to give away the main main dude I'm writing about, but he's a very stylized guy, and. It, it makes you wonder, like, should the writing match the 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 persona, or should the writing be tamped down to and the in in service of the persona, but not trying to to match the persona blow for blow? Um, is that something you've uh, a, you know uh, something you've approached in in your writing where you're like, oh, I'm writing about something that's really bombastic, so I need to write up to that, or do you dial turn the volume down? Yes, to to both of those. I've had I've had to do both, you know, like so and I'm sure you have too. If you're writing for an outlet and you have to match the outlet voice, that's always an extra challenge. You know, you got to like come into that normative voice for whatever the publication is. That's um I think very similar to that, yeah. but also um yeah, there's a there's in in um one of the the books that I'm working on now, um, I there's like a, a Wild West chapter, Wild West chapter, uh, <laughs> where I'm sort of telling stories about um, like the Wild West towns associated the, with with the railroads. And at some point, um, my editor was like, "So you sort of go full Deadwood here?" He's like. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
he's like you come out like you have you have one voice that you've been using and then like you kind of come out swinging <laughs> like you you're like you're writing in a voice similar to these to like the people that you're describing and we had to sort of talk about whether or not that was how I was if I if I was getting away with it and whether I was going to get away with it and and if I was going to do that if I could get away with it for just that chapter and then go on my merry way um, and if the reader would stay with me and sort of recognize what was happening or if I needed to come into alignment with myself. But it was it was interesting because I had drifted into it yeah. without recognizing it, probably because I was just excited about the content. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I think that the thing to do always is to try as closely as possible to write in exactly the voice that you would use to tell your best friend or your favorite relative that it's easy to be comfortable around what the, what the content is about. Whatever voice one uses when you're very excited and in very comfortable, safe company, I think is the voice to use as close as possible on the page, because that's when you're sort of most comfortable with the material and most comfortable with your grasp of the material and your presentation of it and your audience. And you're not pandering to anybody, that sort of best friend in the backyard yeah. when they're like, what are you working on? And you give them the detail, you know, like that's, that's always, however, I sound in that conversation is always what I'm trying to sound like when I write is just as authentically, you know, like, cause, cause you're always giving people like the best nuggets in those conversations, you know, yeah. um, but you're not pitching, you're not selling anything. You're just kind of talking about it in the, the way that it excites or stimulates or fascinates you. Does that make sense? Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's kind of like, the um, I've heard people say like sometimes to strike a good tone for whatever you're writing it might be like if you're writing an email to a friend or something you wouldn't be it wouldn't be stilted it might be it might it might go a little towards uh, a little too close to vernacular but if you pull that back just a little bit you'll have kind of a, a more whimsical voice that is kind of fun to read I remember several years ago I mean this is sophomoric but it is what it is i uh we we used to uh we used to play a whole lot of beer dies just drinking game where you try to throw a dice into a cup across the table and you got to catch it sometimes blah 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 but it was uh i won't bore you with the rules but anytime anytime we played this game every week i would put up uh a newsletter that would just kind of like make fun of everybody who was playing and uh and and, and exalt myself because I was the best player, and right. and uh, but I my buddy Pete, who was always someone who was kind of like my ideal reader for so many things. He's like, uh, he's like BL. That was my initials, my nicknames. Like BL. He's like, I don't mean to insult you anything about like the more serious writing you do, but the writing you do in that newsletter is the best stuff you ever do. <laughs> and I, it really, it really struck a chord with me. Like here I was with some of the other things I was doing, like trying to be kind of, um, you know, literary and, you know, artful in that way. Whereas maybe like my strength was striking some, something of a similar tone with the, the irreverent comical 
a voice of those newsletters because it's really engaging and kind of funny. And maybe that is the voice. So it's like those are the games that we can play with ourselves in, in a sense to maybe try to find the right voice for a given project. Right. And to add, you know, and, and to make sure that it's not binary, you know, for me, it's easy to be like, you know, oh, literary or scientific or, you know, like whatever. And, and really the, you know, the question is who you still exist in this book, even if you're writing about a third party, even if you're writing about events that don't, you know, like that, that aren't, you know, not, not memoir, not things about yourself. If you're not actually in it, you're, you're still in the story. And so it's interesting, you know, where, um, you get into questions of who am I in this story? Am I a beat reporter giving just the facts? Am I a professor giving in-depth academic information? Am I um, representing the um, subject, you know, which is, which is what you were getting at, you know, or am I, am I a fan? Am I an insider? Am I a fly on the wall? You know, one of my projects, I'm, I'm sort of writing it from this perspective of, you know, being a local insider and being a fly on the wall and, you know, being able to to see and comment on things that people who, you know, were involved in things at the time aren't able to see because they don't have the benefit of history and looking back. And I've allowed myself to sort of take that sometimes conspiratorial or um, not judgmental, but, you know, there's someone with an opinion mm-hmm. <laughs> that's joined us in the room <laughs> and and you can tell that there's an, there, that there's an opinion and a perspective there and, and that changes the tone and changes the voice. So, yeah, I think it's interesting to sort of investigate, you know, who else is, who else is in the room along with the information and which, you know, who, who should take the mic and tell the story. And as we kind of, slouch towards middle age here in our in our lives and in our careers <laughs> as writers of narrative nonfiction uh, uh what is uh about this chapter in in your life that you're entering or in like what what excites you about what's coming next for you in middle age <laughs> You could in middle I mean, age, okay. and, and also with your writing, how important it is to you at this point versus maybe how important it was ten years ago, or if it's more important or less important, or you know, it, it, things shift. The tectonic plates are always shifting. To use a a term from your uh, your your stock and trade, right? Well, and I feel like well, so you know, ten years ago, um, I really wasn't a writer. I was a baby writer. I had, I was a blogger, you know. So for me, I feel like um, I feel like there's a maturity, and that's nice. I feel like it's nice to be a working writer, um, a somewhat self-sustaining writer. I think it's um, nice to feel like I have a, a body of work behind me, and that I don't sort of um, you know to come out of the that like emerging writers category. I think kind of does a disservice to emerging. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's meant to be protective, but I also think that it's kind of, you know, distancing um, and, and discrediting of what people might, you know, be be able to bring to the table early on in their careers. But I, I feel like, um, you know, like I understand the industry and I understand what I write about and, and the breadth of that um, far better than I did at the beginning of my career. Um, 
I feel like I know who I am in my life and what my highest values are um, far better than I knew 10 years ago. Um, I'm certainly far more aware of what it is I want in life and what I'm willing to do to get it then um, and, and the clarity of vision that you need to sort of s- stick to those things, you know, um, than, than I was when I was younger. Um, and I also feel like I'm in a place where um, I'm not ego driven mm-hmm. in the way that I was, you know, late twenties and early thirties um, and able to kind of put that down and really look at my work as um, a practice. And that feels very freeing and um, like a path to contentment. You know, if we, can, if we can bring it back to contentment, I mean, I feel like um, I don't really feel like I have a lot to prove. I feel like I've been lucky in my career so far. And, and I think that um, kind of moving to a higher level in terms of compensation and speed of projects and, you know, some kind of bigger publishers, like those are all sort of things that you look at, but those are sort of practicalities, you know, like really it's to be able to continue to write about the things that I want to write about that I think are important um, and having work that finds its audience regardless of compensation is, is really where I'm at. And I feel, I feel really lucky to have been able to do that as much as I have so far. Um, and I think I have a much better sense of how to do that far more effectively moving forward. Um, so we'll just, yeah, I, mean, I feel like, you know, slouching towards middle age. Are you kidding me? I like catwalked into middle age. I slid into middle age like a Cheshire cat tail first, you know, in spotted glory. I feel like middle age is like really um, comfy and wonderful and kind of secure and vanity free um and allows me a lot of room to to focus on other things that you know youth youth has pressing issues around ego and vanity and challenges and and growth and accomplishment that middle age kind of frees you from i think it's very nice slouching towards nothing (laughs) (laughs) i like it i like it that makes me feel a lot better <laughs> yeah. Well, well, early on to like twenties and even thirties, there's so much like you you hit it on the head with ego, and there's also so much, and I can attest to this is desperation of wanting, just wanting to get some sort of a toehold, wanting some recognition, which feeds back to the ego. Uh, and so I I can attest at this point, it's like I'm still desperate for some degree of visibility, but the ego's not there. I, I'm more patient. I'm like, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. It's more practice driven, as you were saying. And uh, it's just like, all right, well, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. I, I've, I'm in it for the late bloom, baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think, too, you know, like you have, to, you have to be realistic, too, in terms of time scale. You know, I mean, it's not like we're pop stars. Right. You, you know, or like you're like, like it, that you have to be famous by the age of 20 in order to, to even get a toehold in the industry, you know? And, and so there's, there's lots and lots of um, careers and pathways to success that involve waiting and maturity. And I think that especially creative nonfiction um, 
that it, it, it's often required just because the, the the weight of the material itself can require someone with expertise and um, you know access and a level of maturity to deal with the material itself that goes beyond what you know you might be able to do earlier in a career. That doesn't mean that everyone can't do it. Um, or that people shouldn't try. Of course they should, and of course they can. But I think that, you know, it's like th- there's there's a people need to grow into their expect expertise often, particularly and and sometimes you know sometimes you need ten years to do the research, because it's the nature of um, creative nonfiction, right? Sometimes you have to wait for things to unfold mm-hmm. and for you know documents to emerge or for history to be uncovered. Or um, you know, for the appropriate time for a story to um, be reevaluated. For people to history. die, sometimes you know. <laughs> sometimes you gotta wait for people to die. <laughs> sometimes you have to wait for them to cut, get out of prison. You know, like sometimes you have to wait for your freedom of information requests to come in. You know, you gotta wait five years for somebody to grant you an interview. Then you gotta wait, to, you know, five years to find the agent that sees the value in it. And sometimes it takes two years for that agent, you know, to place it with an editor. And you need to find the editor, you know, that's brave and that sees where you go on the bookshelf. So there's a lot of pieces to it. And I don't think that, I, I think hardly any of them reflect on, you know, the worthiness of the author. And so much of it has to just do with, you know, each book has its time. And that that may have nothing to do with you as an author. You may just be the vessel to for that story to come to light. And you got to let it unfold in its own its own time. You know. Oh yeah. Well, I love it. Well, this is a uh, mission accomplished with this podcast having you back back <laughs> on the mics to just kind of work through some of these things that I think a lot of, I think a lot of writers out there wrestle with and might not be able to, uh, you know, put a finger on the pulse of what might be bugging them or maybe there's frustrated. And, uh, I, I think, uh, I think you've articulated it so well and definitely helped help me work through some of my frustrations here in 40 minutes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's I'm glad I can be glad I can be of service. Yeah. I think, yeah, people shouldn't feel down. Yeah. I think, you know, it's a long game. For sure, you know, and remembering that I think is golden for writers. Wasn't that nice? I thought so. I I leave conversations with Ruby always feeling a little bit better about myself and my place in the world. It'll probably fade and I'll have to talk to her again, but pick up her amazing book, Ground Truth, or... A Woman's Guide to the Wild. You will not regret it. I wasn't sure what I'd riff about here in the parting shot. Uh, Some of the material I was able to unpack a bit with Ruby, like the feeling of writing is just a slog. It feels like gruel, no levels of flavor. You know, that's kind of what I was thinking I'd write about, but I already spoke about it with her, and she just was great. You know, just that writing that's not elevated in any way, and I'm thinking that maybe... That's just got to come with more drafting and more drafting and more drafting. And certainly more research and interviewing. I think what it comes down to right now is I'm writing without a certain measure of trust in myself. Something I have this little birdie on my shoulder that's always telling me like, no, nah, don't do that, man. You got to just turn that, turn that dial way down. 
Do not go up to 11. You're not an up to 11 writer. You might have an up to 11 newsletter at brendanamero.com, <laughs> but you are not an up to 11 writer. You leave that to the good ones. You, you, you stay right there where you are in your lane, you fuck. So I'm writing tentatively. I'm trying so hard to dissolve into the background that what's coming out has little to no pop. Like when you bite into a cobbler and you get that little pop of a blueberry and you're like, whoa, that was nice. And maybe that's what good writing can be. Everything is in balance. And every few bites you get that little punch. And maybe that comes early in the drafting for some people, or maybe it comes late, or maybe it doesn't come at all. But what we must always maintain is a a confidence in our abilities that, uh, that that it might happen. And that sure as hell can be tough, you know that. I've been taking a beating of late with some of the work I've submitted Uh, and the jobs I haven't gotten, and the third coat of paint I'm putting on the book proposal. And it's hard not to start to question yourself. Like, you've been doing this for how long? Maybe you're as good as you're ever going to be. Maybe this is it. Maybe you've hit your limit. You've reached the limit of your talent. And yeah, you can be okay, but you're never going to step up to... Triple A from single A, you know, you might just be stuck. And that's just your groove, man. You are who you are. There's no more changing. So all that does is extinguish your flame. But you know what? It's the glowing ember, man, that burns longest, not the whiplash of fire in the pit. So stay wild, CNFers. And if you can do, interview. See you.